minstrelsy in itself, the way my grandmother thought of it, was a beautiful thing. Now, she did something called, some little skit she created called the Possum Allah. It's based on a dance that she would do. Um, but it was something about playing possum when the old sheriff came around hmm. and pretending to be dead uh, and then getting up as soon as the sheriff left. What my cousin Olivet said about, because this gets into Florida Miller and Shuffle Along and Blackface, mm-hmm. was minstrel, the minstrel show, it's a show, and this is what her father did about black people making fun of white people making fun of black people. <laughs> That is playwright, librettist, former professor of creative writing and African-American literature at Central Michigan University and curator of the Dr. Bunny Briggs and Olivet Miller archive at Yale, Sandra Seaton. And this is the Tap Love Tour podcast. Tap. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Travis Knights. And now, from uh, Bunny Briggs. You know that Bunny Briggs is the most uh, super leviathonic, uh, rhythmaturgically syncopated tapstomaticianismist. That is Duke Ellington delivering one of the most iconic intros to any tap dancer ever, and it's well-deserved. Dr. Bunny Briggs is an inspiration to me like no other. When I was maybe a year into tap, my teacher, Ethel Bruno, gave me a VHS recording of the Broadway show Black and Blue. Man, let me tell you, <laughs> uh, I wore that tape down. Jimmy Slide killing it, butter and egg, man. I can't give you anything but love. Uh, that baller chorus line, those singers, Ruth Brown and Linda Hopkins, ain't nobody's business if I do. If I can't sell it, I'm going to remain seated on it. And the tap dancing, oh, by the way, the tap dancing, uh, phenomenal, out of this world. Bunny Briggs, out of everyone. Bunny Briggs doing in a sentimental mood was a masterclass that I, I'll I'll never forget. It, it was Bunny Briggs doing in a sentimental mood that opened my eyes to the storytelling possibilities of tap dance. It wasn't just all, you know, happy-go-lucky. The dance has a depth to it that I'm still uncovering today. Legacy. It's an important concept to invest in. As I get older with my own kids, legacy becomes more and more significant. What are the youth going to bring forward to the future? How will they have access to the treasures of the past? Our guest today, Sandra Seaton, has delivered a gift to the future generations housed at Yale. She is the curator of the Dr. Bunny Briggs and Olivet Miller Archive. Documents, recordings, archived history available to all those that have the curiosity to search for it. 
my intention with this interview was to open up the process of curation and to understand more about what's in the archives. But Sandra Seton was way, way too interesting. Um, What you're about to listen to is an art conversation. My interest in this epoch of my dancing is storytelling, so I couldn't resist talking to Sandra Seton, the playwright. Sandra Seton, the librettist. Sandra Seton, the professor of creative writing and African-American literature. Sandra Seton, family to Floynoy Miller. If you don't know who that is, pause this podcast right now and look him up. I'm, I'm serious. Right now, look up Floynoy Miller. Yes. Listen, yes, of course. Yes, we spoke about the Bunny Briggs and Olivet Miller archives, but this conversation is full of richness beyond my expectations. At a certain point, Sandra Seton mentions the Columbia race resistance. As I listened to her story, I slowly became aware of exactly what she was talking about. I don't like to use this word because the meaning has become charged, but it was an absolute privilege (laughs) to speak with Sandra Seton. Now, before we jump into this conversation, uh, an important piece of information that jumped out uh, to me was learning that Dr. Bunny Briggs still needs a grave marker at his gravesite. You'll hear my tone in the interview. Hopefully it doesn't come off as rude or anything, but but I promise you the confidence in my voice, uh, hopefully that you'll perceive, is because uh, I believe in the love, the power, and the resources within the tap dance community. We can get this done. We can fund the marker for Dr. Bunny Briggs and transport his wife, Olivette Miller, to lay beside him. I have to reach out to Sandra Seaton to get the cost and logistical details, but please email tapliftor at gmail.com if you want to support this effort. We can form a committee and make this happen for the ancestor. Once again, that's tapliftor at gmail.com. Let's connect and work together to make this happen. Um, Without further ado, please... Extend your cleanest left foot shuffles and welcome to the Tap Love Tour podcast. The curator of the Dr. Bunny Briggs and Olivette Miller archives at Yale, Sandra Seaton. I have to, I started with saying, uh, first of all, thank you. Uh, and uh, how uh, nervous I am because I, I feel like this uh, conversation, this document is, is going to be, is precious to me and going to be mm-hmm. precious to those who listen to it. Mm-hmm. Of course, I'm a tap dancer. So I'm, you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, Dr. Bunny Briggs, huge influence on me. My mm-hmm. teacher, her name is Ethel Bruno, and she came mm-hmm. from Harlem, New York. Her teacher was Mary Bruce. And mm-hmm. my teacher from Jump uh, told me about the masters. And, even, and because... You know, I was the rare black male student in her school. She gave me uh-huh. VHS tape and VHS tape. One of the VHS tapes, of course, was um, the Broadway production of Black and Blue. And so from the earliest moment that I started tap dancing, I understood through Dr. Bunny Briggs that tap dance was able to communicate anything and everything. That um, piece, uh, In a Sentimental Mood, Duke Ellington, it, oh, yeah. to this day, the, the, the storytelling involved floors me. And so, of course, as a tap dancer, I'm hyper interested in Dr. Bunny Brings. But mm-hmm. the world of tap dance, 
um, is not singular. The world of tap dance includes jazz, it includes vaudeville, it includes minstrelsy, it includes a bunch of things. Absolutely. It, you know, it includes buck dancing, it includes, you know, stories from Africa. It's, it's, you, we can't skip over these things. That's why I'm intimidated talking to you. Like I'm, I'm, oh. I'm coming to a realization of who you are. And so can we start there? As a, you know, a playwright, I had mm -hmm. to look up librettist. I'm like, what is, let me, let me look at this. <laughs> um, what, what is it that uh, draws you to storytelling? What is it about storytelling that speaks to you, that calls you? Well, really, I think, and I would say, Dr. Bunny Briggs, Bunny Briggs, he was Bunny to me. Mm. Uh, his legacy, and he incorporates, and what's so important to me about him is that all the things he brought with him, his his knowledge of tap, his, his um, being intermersed in the, in his Harlem, community and 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 what dance meant to that community um and the way he mentored other dancers uh he was a man of faith and he was so many things rolled into one and that's the hard work of uh, that we all do when we're involved in the arts as black people so it, it's not just one thing we're focusing on. So I think, you know, thank you for asking me and going back to myself. My writing plays started with being immersed in my own family life. My... Um, I came from a community in Columbia, Tennessee, that, and, and during the era of segregation, we had our own very close-knit community when we had our own rituals and social organizations. My grandmother, Emma, grew up with Flournoy Miller, who, who wrote the book for Shuffle Along. Hmm. And Flournoy Miller was my um let's see my grandfather's first cousin let me get all that right mm -hmm. we are technically because of the things that happened in slavery and names weren't all what they were supposed to be but my family we are millers as warner miller was my grandmother grew up in the tradition of um minstrelsy as you said mm -hmm. she um they would do little um shows where she would be the end man and her friend uh rebecca would be the interlocutor and she told me all kinds of stories and she performed for me and i know she did little skits with with Effie Miller when they were growing up, they were the same age with Mr. Miller. And um, and I was around all that. I was around my mother and her sisters who all went off to Tennessee, A and I, or, and my father went to Fisk and, and 
they brought home uh, the big band records and the dances in Nashville and um, and my aunt Camille told me about a yellow raincoat she had and all the the bands that would come through would sign it. So I knew early on that there was a rich black culture that even though it wasn't um, recognized, it was there. Mm. And I know when Florida Miller passed, there were all kinds of like Jack Benny, Red Skelton, Bob Hope. They all said that it was the funniest he was the funniest comic they'd ever seen. They knew his routines well, and they were very much influenced by them. So wow. I, I wanted to, I guess my first play, The Bridge Party, I wanted to reclaim that past that I thought had not been recognized. And very often, you know, well, you know, my family, they were sometimes butlers and maids and um, if they weren't teachers, that was a, something you did. You went off and you were the housekeeper and you were a married couple and uh, you would have that position in the family. Uh, and so I knew that there are people who did this. So I would get frustrated by movies when I saw that this is the only thing that Black people can do in your movies. This is the 30s, 40s, 50s. They're the maid or the servant. And these are like accomplished actors, but they were just never given roles. Hmm. I wanted to show a world that was bigger than the world that had been seen on television and and in, in film. I wanted to show a world that encompassed more than that. So that's how I think I started. And of course, you know, my grandmother, she... One of the other things she did was she went around with Saturn Paul Lawrence Dunbar to at teas, weddings, churches. You know, this was something she would do it for the church. You know, a, a woman of her generation for the menstrual shows, it would just be something for the church. You know, women her in her generation, they didn't go around, they didn't go out in public and have careers as you know, whatever like that. Mm. Um, because since she passed away in 73, she was 89. So she was a total other generation, just didn't didn't do that sort of thing. But she would go and, and do all that. So I knew um, when I went to the University of Illinois and, and I, I recited a poem for my speech class about by Paul Lawrence Dunbar, my professor really enjoyed it. And he said, oh, you know, I have never heard that name because he had never heard. You know, there were no black professors at Illinois then. So he had never heard of Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Uh, he enjoyed it, but I thought, wow, you know, this isn't, you know, how could you not know who Paul Lawrence Dunbar is? Well, at that time, most of, most people didn't, unless you came from a particular African-American milieu. And uh, I'm not sure whether not all African-Americans would have known either, because it just wasn't something that was taught. Composer William Balcom, uh that I admire very much. He uh, was at one of my plays, and uh, he saw he saw the bridge party, and then he asked me to write a a um, 
a libretto, which is the words of an opera or a classical music piece. And he set those to music. Uh, it um, premiered at Coolidge Auditorium, and it was called From the Diary of Sally Hemings. Mm-hmm. And, of course, there is no Diary of Sally Hemings. So what I did was through my research and from thinking about my own family, I created this imaginary diary for her based on that I thought was historically plausible, which is what we do with a lot of things, whether it's we're talking about George Washington really didn't cut down the cherry tree. But <laughs> right. we, this is what we imagine, given what we knew about him and his life, right? So to say that this couldn't be possible, well, okay, then let's just scratch a whole lot of American history. That's not possible either. And uh, so um, I uh, wrote this, and when it premiered at Coolidge Auditorium Library of Congress in the Thomas Jefferson Building, which I thought was fascinating. Good God. Mm -hmm. There were 45 of Sally Henning's descendants there. They came. The Library of Congress stays in touch with Monticello because uh, Jefferson, uh, when he do- donated his books, I'm sure, I believe, um, um, to the Library of Congress, uh, that they established this relationship. So anyway, they knew they knew the the the, the Hemings descendants from Monticello, this was in 2000, so they came. And I have stayed in touch with a number of them, uh, gotten to be friends. Uh, They were very pleased, so if they were pleased with it, I was pleased. And um, I got a note from um, Shea Banks and Julia Jefferson. They were the people that were on Oprah uh, way back when, Uh, the two of them. One looks um, technically african-american the other one looks technically white but they were descendants of uh two of uh, thomas jefferson's uh, children and they sent me a note saying thank you for um you know for honoring and uh telling the story of our great great grandma plus so i mean that did it you know if they liked it uh then i was happy because i was concerned well you know how how will they feel about this you know because this gets personal yeah uh and um, that was my first libretto. I went on to do uh, other so, libretti. I'm, I'm so sorry. Can we? There's a bunch of questions that are just stacking up in in my mind. Uh, the first of all, is there is there like footage? Are there recordings of of the Sally Hemings work? Yeah, you know, on my website, uh, there's the Glimmerglass Festival at um, in in Cooperstown. They, this was recorded by a soprano, Allison Cambridge at Merkin Hall, hmm. uh, which is, I guess, part of Lincoln Center. And that is on my, on my, if you look on my website, it's, okay. it is, it is there. And I guess it's, there's a link to it at the bottom of my email too, where it right. says, uh-huh. so that is the whole recording. Uh, it's very beautifully done. How, how, what was your age when, when you took on this monumental task of telling the story of Sally Hemings? Well, it was in 2000. So that was, what, 23 years ago? 
uh, how, what kind of research was was involved? What, uh... Oh my goodness! Oh, it was so much work. <laughs> you know, I um, I spent a year doing research, mm. and I was a college professor at the same time. I um, did a lot of firsthand research. Wow. I read uh, books about you know the social life of the time. Mm. Uh, the life of slaves, the life of free blacks, the life of um, of of whites, the life of women, mm. the costumes, uh, the music. I have books about flowers in Virginia. I have books about that I bought that I and then I read a Jefferson's farm book. His uh, his notes on Virginia. Uh, I read some of his letters. I mean, there were volumes and volumes. I talked to, uh, I didn't know any of the descendants at that time. Mm -hmm. And I had never been to Monticello. And so I didn't actually go to Monticello until several years after that, because there was a reunion of Sally Hemings descendants, and I went to that, mm. which was pretty fascinating. But I, it lived in my imagination, which so many things do, and I'm sure with dance, a lot of that, you think it's living in your imagination. Mm. Um, and which is the way you work creatively, it's in your imagination, and you bring it to life. Can you tell me about your uh, artistic process? Um, these are all, most of these questions are selfish. I apologize, but uh, the uh, I imagine that it, it may have been like a struggle to. Uh, I, I imagine it may may have been like a struggle to take on that work because it, it seems monumental. It seems extremely important to the African American diaspora. Mm -hmm. uh, can you flesh out some of the things that you went through in in creating it, and how you well, overcame them? Well, I guess there's, you know, I mean, going back with my first work, The Bridge Party, mm. you know, it was about my own family past, although I did, you know, I looked up things, I looked up details. And then probably since that first writing, I imagine I've revised that 10, 15 times. So it's not so much the process of writing, it's more the process of revising with just about everything. Mm. You know, and every time, say, it's been produced, I can think of things to change. Mm. Now, uh, that's different with the libretto operatic work. That's Sally Hemings' um, song cycle. It's 45 minutes. That's written in stone. It's it's not going to be changed. But plays do change. And I just wanted to mention one other thing. Yeah. My second play was a play called The Will, and it's about uh, Civil War. Um, my family goes back a long way. My grandmother's family, uh, the oldest um, members I trace back to is uh, 1790. That's how far my family goes back in my hometown. So that play, The Will, is about my grandmother's grandfather. And, his, and he was born in 1812. Uh, and uh, 
this takes place during um, Reconstruction. Uh, and this is something I'd heard from family stories about sons coming back from the Civil War and thinking they were going to have the same rights as other people, and they didn't. And I involved, there's music involved in that. Uh, I pay homage to Elizabeth Taylor Greenfield, mm-hmm. called, uh, called her the Black Swan, uh, singer who sang for Queen Victoria. Uh, she was, wasn't recognized in this country, but you know, overseas she was. Mm-hmm. So that one, again, it points to our legacy uh, and that's why one of the things I really enjoyed was uh, Glory, uh, the, the movie Glory. I really enjoyed um, 12 Years a Slave because it did show uh, a broader, a broader, you know, picture mm-hmm. of, of, of African Americans. So th- th- those are the things there. So that those two came out of that. And I don't know out of that desire to pay homage to our legacy. Now, and you were going back with my process, my writing process, well, I say a big part of it is the revising, but once I do the research, you know, I spent a whole year of, before I wrote the will, reading this newspaper called the Nashville Globe, which was a black paper that's well it printed into the 40s but there was a hiatus after 1913 and I read all the copies I could find in the Tennessee State Archives because I wanted to understand what the world was like Mm. so I was going on microfilm I was reading all those and just kind of get an idea of what life was like then Mm. then as soon as I do that I put all that aside because I'm not doing the documentary this isn't a history lesson. I step into that world. It's like I'm in a time machine. And then I don't know everything people know now, right now, in the present time. I only know what someone in that world would know. So that means you have to drop the history, but you're informed by the history. I don't know if this makes sense, but that's how it works with me. So then I can do that, and then I have to imagine what the the language would have looked like. I went to the Library of Congress, and and I found um, recordings, interviews with slaves, uh, and I picked up that language, which was actually much more well these are people that had they were maybe because my my I know my great great grandfather Cyrus was educated um and so uh he had been raised by abolitionists so uh he was a farmer free black and I had to figure out some language and then I had to figure out just a lot of things. Uh, 
And of course, that started out very, very rough. Oh, it was so rough. And this was in the 90s. And I kept working on it until it was ready to be produced. And I guess the one thing with me, I guess I'm thinking, I have to think of my audience. And is my audience, because some things I really look at them and I think, well, this is the way white people want to see black people, whether this is really the way black people are, but it's really the way that, because if it's going to be sponsored or funded, that's what I found fascinating about Chandra Rhimes and the Bridgerton, was she dared to present not what the way black people were supposed to be, but how she imagined they were capable of being. Hmm. Does that make sense? It does. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, I mean, I've seen, well, I just know that, um, that we, have been molded by the perceptions of others that maybe we think this is really who we are. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I mean, whose idea was it that jazz stopped being important in, at a certain time or, or that this form of black art or that form of black art is not as relevant anymore but i think sometimes if a work doesn't fall into a certain perception uh then it's just not valued i, I mean i i've watched some of the during covid i was watching some of the major television shows and I won't even say because I actually probably will start working with someone on one of those on a musical piece you know I don't write for television or, or film but I mean I probably could but the roles of, of, of a particular show that I was watching they're so narrow the African Americans have such narrow roles if they have, they're doing something somewhere, like they're a lawyer or they're uh, whatever, they're a investigator. That's all they do. They mm -hmm. don't go home. They they're just there doing their little thing. Um. So that, I'm getting off on that, but I. I think. I think it's, to... Yeah, sorry. I think it's right on. Um, you know the. Uh, it's it's I guess what I'd say to that is, you know, the the as the story goes, minstrelsy starts in the 1840s mm -hmm. um, and lasts until the 1950s. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, my question is, uh, is it necessarily the case that it's not a minstrel show uh, if there's no blackface? 
You know what I'm saying? Like, is it, it just because there's no blackface, does that make it not a minstrel show? Uh, when you're talking about the perceptions <clears throat> uh, that are being uh, manufactured and portrayed uh, by non-black people about black people, uh, uh -huh. it, it's a uh, it's very uh, it's it's detrimental and it affects black people and our perceptions of ourselves. And so I, I'm sitting here, I'm listening to you, and my heart is overflowing, and uh, like I, I'm grateful for your decision to. Uh, take on the task of being a storyteller and writing our own stories. And similar to your curation of the Olivet Miller and uh, Bunny Briggs archives, it's like this, it's, it's a part of storytelling. It's a part of uh, preserving a specific legacy and a complex um, dynamic view of people, of ourselves right. and each other. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing going back to the one about the civil war, the, 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 the the, the 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 other shoe that fell on that was a historian in my community, a black woman who's our, our county historian, the first black woman to hold that position. You know, the South is a big history place. And um uh she sent me and I from the Library of Congress archives about Ku Klux Klan investigations in the right uh during Reconstruction. And it was like because one of the young men that I wrote about in my play, The Will, had actually gotten into trouble, sassed a white man, and had to be, and uh, he had to, they had to get him out of town quickly. Mm. His story is in the archives. I actually, his name, Israel Webster, and they were talking about what they wanted to do to him. And this was an interview there, and it really happened. I mean, I knew because my in his will they talked about him if he ever comes back again, and I knew this is handed down. But there it was in the Library of Congress archives on the Ku Klux Klan. Wow. So you know, it just brought the whole thing to life, uh, and then also this idea that maybe our oral histories are suspect. Well, this one certainly wasn't. Right. I mean, it really was there. And uh, so anyway, so that's a part of that legacy. Uh, and, and I guess going on to, well, I've done, okay, since then, just to, to finish quickly, uh, most recently, I was commissioned to write a uh, play with music about Mary Cardwell Dawson, who was the founder of the National Negro Opera Company. And uh, they're trying to re to uh, uh, restore her home in Pittsburgh now. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. But um, it was at first at Gunner Glass, and then this. In January 2023, it was performed at the Kennedy Center, and I, it was written for Denise Graves. So Denise Graves, uh, several of the arias in it, three of them, I wrote for her, and those were set to music. Wow. So that was wonderful. It was wonderful to work with her and to see her bring that story to life.
and she plays Madame Mary Cardwell Dawson in the play. And it's going to be at Pittsburgh Opera, I think May 2024. Okay. I see. Uh, mm -hmm. Beautiful. I love it. Uh, and the work continues. Uh, mm -hmm. Listen, this is why. Okay, so before, before we move forward, mm -hmm. can we take a step back? first sure. um uh, i'm i'm working on a play myself uh through uh -huh. soul, soul pepper theater company it's called the trial of uncle tom it's the feel uh -huh. good family uh <laughs> feel good family uh -huh. show of the year but uh -huh. um it's uh -huh. really about my complicated relationship um as a black man as a tap dancer with bill robinson <clears throat> oh uh, bojangles yes uh so so i uh i uh I'm raised by wonderful people mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, my parents taught me certain things uh, as important in order to survive. Mm -hmm. So you dress a certain way, you speak a certain way, mm -hmm. uh, you don't eat this or that in public. That is what they expect of us. You do not mm -hmm. skin your teeth in photographs. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's all these things was poured into mm -hmm. me as a child mm -hmm. and I didn't really understand why. Then, of course, uh, I fall in love with tap dance and my teacher, uh -huh. the first name she brings up is Bill Robinson. And I'm taught absolute respect from my uh -huh. teacher, Ethel Bruno, and I'm taught absolute disdain from my parents about the same person. Um, when you mentioned uh, uh, your grandmother and minstrel shows and then and, and then my brain kind of broke uh, when when you brought up Paul Lawrence Dunbar and reciting these poems. Uh, can you can you bring me in on the nuance of this? Uh, the the nuance oh, of yeah. I'd be happy to. Yes, I'd please. be happy to. I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. Are, are you? Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. I'd be happy to because first of all, um, minstrelsy in itself, the way my grandmother thought of it, mm -hmm. was a beautiful thing. Now, she did something called, some little skit she created called the Possum of Law. It's based on a dance that she would do. Um, but it was something about playing possum when the old sheriff came around hmm. and pretending to be dead uh, and then getting up as soon as the sheriff left. What my cousin Olivette said about because this gets into Florida Miller and Shuffle Along and Blackface, mm -hmm. was Minstrel, the Minstrel Show. It's a show, and this is what her father did, about Black people making fun of white people making fun of Black people. <laughs> I love that so much. Okay, wow. I mean, I'm that's sorry. what she said it was because Florida Miller himself was a very educated, elegant man. He went to Fisk, hmm. and I think he and Aubrey Lyles met at Fisk. And the thing is, when you think about Fiddler on the Roof, mm -hmm. when they really kind of make there's some buffoonery there about the Jewish community. Nobody takes that as who really Jewish people really are. Hmm. If African-Americans do comedy routines about other African-Americans, 
it's assumed to be who they really are hmm. and and not a vehicle for comedy um and so thinking about shuffle along i know langston hughes said that's the only reason he went to columbia so he could go to that show right and he said he almost went out going to it uh and that was filled the the, the show was filled with white comics watching them perform. I know when Flournoy Miller passed away, there were all of them there. I mean, I have letters for the, from them are in the archives praising him as the biggest influence on them. So once you put a white face on it, then all of a sudden it's legit. Hmm. But when African-Americans were doing this, part of it was there was not the realization that there was a huge African-American community that lived in other ways and that that was strong and resilient but were able to enjoy this humor because I know my family they were teachers and I asked them about it oh they loved it I mean Amos and Andy was a very popular show with African Americans I know there was a thing with the NAACP that didn't want it on television. But um, one of the things about Amos and Andy, and it was true as Shuffle Along, was people just did not want to see Black people on television anyway. Um, they didn't want to have a Broadway show, as they call it now, about Black people, right? Mm -hmm. So this was a way to get it in there. But if you think about Shuffle Along in the 1920s, it showed a Black community. It hasn't been seen since then. What was on Broadway, you know, the, the making of Shuffle Along was not Shuffle Along. Right. But it showed a fully developed Black community in roles that African Americans had, hadn't been seen on the stage. And there was a, a, a love story there. There were, you know, uh, there were just folks in there. Um, and then the original at, production, right? And if, and that's much the same as Amos and Andy because what fascinated me as a kid about Amos and Andy was you had all kinds of people. You had people in department stores. You had people the grocery store. You had all these different people there in the Amos and Andy show. Uh, and I'm trying to think, you know, of his name now. 
um, who was a composer, actor, the man that was, but they had a full African-American community that Amos and Andy were a part of, which is true of I Love Lucy, of any of those shows. You know, there is a big community and Lucy's a part of it. Right. Uh, and really, it took all these years till shows like, you know, Blackish or whatever, to really bring that back. Mm-hmm. So in the Amos and Andy show, in a way for me, was quite powerful. And of course, you had who was it? Uh, not Kingfish. Was it Amos or Andy? One of them was one of our great. I can't think of his name. You know what I'm talking about. Was one of our great filmmakers. Um, one of our great directors. You know, what I'm talking about. Um, like the guy. Um... But he did so much. But see. He was he was denied visibility in that role. You know, um was Oscar Michelle. Thank you. He, yeah. But he wasn't Oscar Michelle, but oh. he um but um but he uh there was Oscar Michelle, but this guy um directed um Alvin Sheryl was I'm just looking at the people that were in Amos and Andy. Ernestine Wade, Johnny Lee, Amanda Randolph, Lillian Randolph, Jester Harrison's who I was thinking of, who's a great talent. But I mean, these are all people that were important people in showbiz. But Spencer Williams was um, uh, was a pioneering who portrayed Andy was a pioneering African-American film producer and director. It seems to me that uh, with everything that you're saying, um, it's first of all, it's scary. It's scary to me. Like as a, as a, a young ish man, I'm about to turn 40 as a young ish man. <laughs> uh, um, like, when, when I'm taught about minstrelsy, when I think about minstrelsy, like the reaction is very 2D. It's, it's black and white. It's, uh-huh. it is unacceptable. It is banned. We're, we're done with this and, and all the things. Uh-huh. And, and uh, in so doing, there's, there's a loss of nuance. There's a loss of real understanding. I'm thinking about Burt Williams and the, and the genius uh-huh. of uh, uh-huh. Burt Williams. That's not allowed uh-huh. to be recognized next to Charlie Chaplin and uh, uh-huh. Mr. Keaton um, because of blackface minstrelsy. What you just said blew my mind. Black people making fun of white people pretending to be black. Hilarious. Uh-huh. That's, that's uh-huh. just the, the because, nuance there. Yeah, because we were a, a very, very, at that time, a very sophisticated people. And so to say anything else puts us as little children, which we weren't. We weren't like, oh, we're just going to get out here and, you know, just mindlessly do this. Do you have uh, any advice, um, as you know, as you said, plays constantly change. Uh, Do you have any advice? Because what's in my mind is there needs to be uh, um, healing understanding for black people. And so I'm thinking about the black people that come to see the trial of Uncle Tom. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, do you have any advice of like uh, for a balm, uh, a healing balm 
for the people that come to see the show and do business with Bill Robinson in relation to the history of uh, blackface minstrelsy and representation? Oh, wow. Hmm. I'd have to think about that. I'd have to think about that. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, we can continue to talk about that, but I'll tell you, I interviewed, okay, when Bunny and Olivet, I was working with the American Popular Culture Association. Mm -hmm. I think I was, I don't know, I was head of the Midwest Popular Culture Association, and I wanted them to know about Shuffle Along. Excuse me. So I interviewed, and this is going to go into the archives. It's not there yet. But I have a video of Bunny and Olivet, and they talk about Shuffle Along. Wow. And that's when, and Olivet said that in Shuffle, about that's when she said that to me, about, you know, about Black people making fun of white people making fun of Black people. That was her. And she also told me, and she had mentioned this before, was that her father wrote Who's On First for no! Abbott and Costello. stop it. What? Yes. <laughs> wow. Okay. And of course, that's something that, I'm sure there's no record of that because they wouldn't want that. But that's what I, she said. Yeah, he did. That's ridiculous. And when you listen to Hughes on first, and then you watch some of those old, and you read some of those old, or watch some of those old shuffle along routines. Mm. Very similar. Mm. Oh, so I know. Red Skelton, Bob Hope, Jack Benny were all heavily influenced by Shuffle Along. Wow. Um, it's uh, okay. Let's 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 be unprofessional and just dive in. I had a conversation with um, this wonderful tap, one of my favorite tap dancers. Her name is uh, Brene Ali. Yesterday, and, I'm sorry. Uh, who saw that? Who? Her name is Brene Ali. She's out of uh, Baltimore. Okay, right, 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 right. And mm -hmm. uh, um, she's doing uh, um, research on uh, the great baby Lawrence. Oh, and yes. Uh -huh. She mm -hmm. learned me yesterday that, uh, you know, uh, baby Lawrence and uh, Dr. Bunny Briggs were uh, partners at, at, at one point. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. Can you tell me about that? Well, you know, I don't really know. You know, I put things in the archives, but I don't know about Bunny's, everything about Bunny's relationship. If I went back to the archives, there could be correspondence. Okay. But that isn't really, I, I wouldn't call myself an historian at all about it. Um, what, what was so important to me was when I saw all the um, papers and just everything that was there from when I was helping Bunny at the house, and we had been in touch for a very long time, was that this is a legacy that has to be preserved. Yeah. Because my big fear, and I've seen this happen, is so many of us who have these papers and documents they, they either they get thrown out by relatives or they just go nowhere. This is happening in my hometown when there's so much, so much rich history. Rich history. Mm -hmm. And and some of that I will never have because I know my cousin Olivet, when 
um, I was told by Bunny that, you know, if she was in failing health and and there was a, a cleaning lady, she would, you know, Flournoy Miller had written this play, uh, a musical, a play about, or a film about um, black cowboys. He was very interested in black cowboys. And, and I said, well, what happened to that? Oh, she, I think she gave that to the cleaning lady or something. You know, I mean, it's gone. That's it. Yeah. Uh, he was, um, hmm. had such a rich, rich, rich uh, background himself. And How, he was one yeah. of the people that collaborated with, you know, from the Wizard of Oz, the guy who played the kindly lion, I kind of think. But they worked together to get the N-word out of any film in Hollywood. The So the actor that played the lion mm -hmm. and Flournoy Miller... Mm -hmm. Worked to get the like 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 a like a petition like like a like a lobby to get the word out well, of. Well, well, they knew they would have known people. I mean, he was very very. Um, he was Florian Miller was very connected mm. with show business with Hollywood, mm. and so he would have had. He knew so many people, and. Uh, and I'm pretty sure it was the kindly lion, um, but he was friends uh, with uh, with. Uh, I was trying to think who was that. Who was that in the Wizard of Oz? Bert Lar Lair Lar Lair, or maybe Lair. it was the Tin Man. Um, I'm just trying Jack to think. Jack Haley. Uh. I, it's in the um, Ray Bolger uh, Scarecrow. Ray Bolger. <clears throat> I, it wasn't Bert Lar. It wasn't. Uh, um, Bert Lar was a cowardly lion, hmm. and I think it was. Um, who was the whole cast of? Uh, so you got Jack Haley. And Ray Bolger. Jack Haley. I'm pretty sure it was Jack Haley. Okay. Tin Man. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The Tin Man's Jack Haley. Uh-huh. They worked together uh to make that happen. Um mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. so uh uh how long did this process take you, you know, the the curation development of of the archives? Oh my goodness. Well, let me just go step back a minute. Yeah. The thing, like I said about Bunny, was that he was a person, individual who had great respect for legacy, for the arts, for just the right way to hold yourself, to proceed. And this was in everything he did. When he was with Olivet, he was a gentleman. He treated her as a lady. He was a kind, um, thoughtful person. 
And when you were around him, you knew you were in the presence of someone who had a real respect for others, including you. If you were in the room with him, it was about you. It wasn't about him trying to get to his agent or do this or that or blah, 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 blah. Mm. He gave you all his time. And I think he was a great role model. He said when he talked to young women, he would talk to them about how to sit, where to put themselves, not just how to dance, but just how to conduct themselves properly. And he would tell me about that. And my kids, my sons, you know, the ones that you were just speaking to, they who never met him, but talked to him on the phone. And 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 they just were just in awe, just from phone conversations with him. You know, and just just telling his history, his stories. And uh uh so he when I think about him and wanting to preserve his legacy, it really gets into about my family, about my family's legacy and how important that was to me and how so much of that has been lost and is being lost Mm -hmm. right now. Because, you know, you think of those names that you mentioned, I don't know where their papers are. and then another thing, and and then photos. Uh, I was I'm frustrated because you know I have photos of my family from the 1800s, and I know they're my family, but I don't know that I don't know who they are. I, I don't know because there's no names on it. So what I've, I'm hoping that what we can do is get to the archives where the photos that are there will be named. That is so important. Mm. Uh, I'm looking at something here. There's something I have here that was at Bunny's, four women singing, and they were in the collection. I have no idea who they are. They're singers. I can send you. I can. I can. Um... Yes, please. Thank you. Hmm? Yes, please. Thank you. I'm, I'll get it right now. Just a second. I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it, and then I'll show it to you. It's right here. Oh, I'd have to take that off. No, I'll just send it to you because I'm on... Uh, I'm on. Uh, I'd have to change my settings. Yeah. I, I will. I will uh, make a copy of it and send it to you. Um, but I realized going there that this is a history that we just do not want to lose. We can't lose this history. And I know. I know. I know. I know. This is obvious, and it's obvious to me. But I just wanted to state it explicitly, if you will. Uh, mm-hmm. Why is it so important that these things be preserved and remembered? Well, because in the era now, you know, we have a very limited uh, notion of 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 our past, whether this is whether it's black or white, you know, this PBS, there's American experience that shows like that. But that only shows a little bit of it. And what this does is it it gives us 
the story of a, a life lived and how this person got from A to Z. And then that serves as a testimonial, mm. as a role model for what this could, how this could be for someone like yourself, a, a Travis, mm -hmm. how that can become a, a role model for you. Mm -hmm. That's a part of it. It's it's like, and it's also history. And once history is, this history is gone, it's not like you can go because the people aren't there anymore. Uh, so this history lives after the individual physically is gone. You still have the history that lives. Uh, we know we all want to live forever. Well, this this history will live forever. Uh, whatever's there, because I, I I wanted it to go to to Yale because for one thing they are so meticulous about their records uh, and. They store them away, I guess, for a few months and just to make sure that there's nothing there that could, you know, or blah, blah. They do that with everything uh, uh, and they bring it out uh, and they go through. They spent a year just cataloging it. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and, and then they sent me the, the, the catalog. And I went over it and made some changes in the wording and whatever, and then sent it back to them. Mm. And all this happened before they they actually put it out. So the very very and none of none of it can ever leave there. It can't be sold. You know, it you you can look at it there, and then I think you can also if you see something you want. Uh, I think they can make ha have someone find it and they can make a copy of it mm -hmm. and send it to you. Mm -hmm. I think that's the way it works. Uh, but thing about our records is you, you want to go where go to a place where they're going to have great security and they're going to treat it properly. It's in the James Weldon Johnson archives, and I think that made me very proud to know that that's where it's it's uh, one of our great names. Uh, that it's that's where it's held, and I think Bunny Bunny would be very very happy to know this. Yeah. He would he would be in tears probably. He was a very emotional guy, and he would get like so touched by anyone who remembered him. Uh, or anyone who cared about him, uh, he would just be so touched. And he wasn't, he had no, not even the tiny, tiniest bit of, of you know, being, you know, a big ego. He, he wasn't that, he was not that at all. And I guess that's part of his success. He, he put it all on the, on that floor, on that dance floor. With your uh, close relationship with them, uh, with uh, Olivet Miller and uh, Bunny Briggs, is there something, are there things that you, that surprised you in the curation of, of these archives? Are there things that you didn't know? Well, first of all, well, you know, Olivet had written things. She'd written music. She'd written shows. Yeah. Um, Bunny had so much was close to so many people 
Uh, he had won all kinds of awards. He'd been involved in in all kinds of shows. Uh, and uh, but he didn't talk about it. Hmm. You know, you didn't know it. He was deeply religious. I, I think he had. I'm not sure whether he actually. I think he physically did meet the Pope, and he. I have some of his uh, his religious because um, he was uh, Catholic, mm-hmm. uh, and I have some of his uh, you know small uh, his items of faith that I know were very important to him. And the thing that was like so interesting, uh, I gave them Olivet's uh, address book, and wow, just like the people she had in that. <laughs> wow, you know, I mean, just the amazing amount of people, and and how hard she worked as a business person, and of course she was a part of that. A later version of the TOBA. Oh, wow. A later version of it, because obviously she had to work a whole lot harder um, than um, someone being a woman of color. She had to work a whole lot harder mm-hmm. to get everything. And her work and her, those archives showed that. Uh, and then her father, uh, his close relationships uh with people i know he was very close as josephine baker there's a photo of the two of them in there mm. uh, and uh of course she was in shuffle along uh, the relationships they had with you know with her family with duke ellington lena horn and so many names now and you know there are things like you know photos that say things like to my pal uh effie miller you know Billy <laughs> wilson you know, my pal, or that same one like Cab Calloway to my, you know, good buddy. And, you know, these are, it's a world, you're stepping into a world of people where it was just like a small world. And I know that I knew just talking to to uh, Bunny that Gregory Hines had come there when Bunny was very ill to the hospital and sat with him and hugged him hmm. and then left. And of course we lost, you know, Gregory Hines is so sadly. And I did know from knowing Bunny, even though I got a lot, there was so much more. Like where was his correspondence with Duke Ellington? I don't know that that was there. And you know, things like that are letters they might have written because what happens is um you know, people move around. We don't mm-hmm. know things like that get saved. I knew just from being around him and also from talking to a good friend of his, you know, Diane Walker is a very good friend of mine. Uh, and, <sighs> and, and you know, and uh, uh, Lady Di, and, you know, we talk. I haven't talked to her in a couple of weeks, but... Uh, you know, some of the things about Bunny, um, I knew about just from talking to her and, you know, working, you know, they were on tap to get uh, tap together. And, you know, you wonder, like, 
like someone like Gregory Hines, he had a wonderful career, but but why is it that we don't know? We know about the leading white tap dancers, but I mean, in the popular imagination, mm -hmm. where is Gregory Hines? Uh, mm. And things like that always concerned me. So, well, when I went to when I went to the apartment, I mean, the house in Vegas uh, when Bunny was ill. And I just realized what I had on my hands here to try to keep things together for him. Um, he had a big bookcase of books on tap and he said, no one has this. And I don't know what happened to those. And I would love mm -hmm. it if those could have been in the Yale collection because mm -hmm. uh, he had collected books on tap. I, I don't know where those are because it's when, when Bunny, after all of that passed, he went into this state of um, of grief. Um, and he wasn't taking good care of himself and he had to be hospitalized. Hmm. And so, um, you know, being in Michigan, I stayed in touch with him the best I could. I was there to make sure that everything was letter perfect for his final arrangements. I saw to it that he was had an incredible funeral. Uh, uh, was attired very elegantly. Hmm. They drove him off in a white Cadillac. Hmm. I mean, he would have loved it. We we were showing. Um, um, they showed the. I had them showing the movie. Uh, was it? Was it? No taps on my. Maps, no, ma you know, no maps on my taps. No maps on my taps. They showed that at the um, at the at the at the funeral home. They showed mm -hmm. that, um, and um, we had a nice get together afterwards. And some of his friends tapped around his uh, after they lured him in. They they did a tap around, tapped around. Mm -hmm. Um, he still needs a marker on his grave. There's no marker there. Okay. What What's the process involved in getting him a marker? This, you know, financial. How much is that? I'm sorry. What? Uh, what What kind of financial? What's What's the What's the damage? You know, I, I, I'd have to, I, it just depends on what you want, but I think there should be one there. Mm -hmm. And I did buy the next, uh, I did it on a monthly basis. I bought the, we can talk about this, but I bought the the uh, plot beside him for all of that. Mm -hmm. And she needs to get there. And that's another mm -hmm. story. 
So I've wanted the two of them side by side. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so, you know, after he passed away, it was just a question of making sure that people realized the importance of his papers because you know we see this so much that I don't know if we appreciate the importance of our own history because you know people don't read as much anymore and so much is to do with the media which is fine I mean it's really not my world but because I you know really don't have time um, to go there but um that's how our world is preserved or really anybody's world and that's how with the library of congress i was able to find the the paperwork see that about the reconstruction they still have that there they have the archives from reconstruction when the government came in the federal government came in and interviewed people about the Ku Klux Klan. Wow. Um, it's it's there, uh, and uh, and now, Bunny's uh, papers, and I'm still I still even actually I have more that I that I need to send. Um, they're there, and um, the F. E. Miller papers. Uh, are there and you know cousin Olivets are there but um, the thing is I think when we see when I heard them talk and when I heard them talk about Abbott and Costello or uh, uh, some of these other people Jack Haley then you get a very different picture of African-American life uh, because what mm-hmm. happened, I think, is a lot of our things <clears throat> have been borrowed and then used to create somebody else's story as if it's their original story. Right. And it's not. Mm-hmm. It's it's not, and so uh, it seems when you put a white face on it, then it becomes legit. You know, art is there to be influenced by, and so you have a great comedian like a Lucy, and you know nobody's taking anything away from her, but if you would put Lucy as a black woman then she would be a buffoon. I've never, ever thought of it that way. <clears throat> hmm. I mean, people would be saying, well, you know, does she, does she really represent us? Right. I mean, doesn't that seem, am I wrong there? Nope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we have this very narrow, there's this very narrow way of, of representing us culturally and it seems that anything that falls out of that uh then you know just forget it you know so tap is so important tap is so important 
you know, I just want to say one thing I'd forgotten was my grandmother used to do something. And, you know, they say Flournoy Miller actually invented the Charleston. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. You can't. No. Okay, go on. Go on. But my grandmother what? used to do what she called the real Charleston. Okay. And and it was it wasn't this thing where it's this real fast and you're swinging your arms. It was something slower. Mm. And she called it the real Charleston. Mm. And whether he invented it or not, he was one of the early proponents of that. And that's something you might want to research. Yeah. Uh about the Charleston about its origins what kind of music was your grandmother doing the real charleston to that's a good question well, it was slower yeah it was like a blues or something like that. that's interesting Ooh, tasty it was slower and i'll tell you one thing um they had this in color purple um black women of my mother's generation did not go near the juke joints or the speakeasies. Mm. That was like no way. First of all, um, you're a Christian lady in the church. So, I mean, the idea that that you would have gone down there or that her sister had started one, well, you would have been banished from the community uh, totally uh, if you did anything like that. The blues was, you know, of course, a great thing, but it wasn't, it was something that, because there wasn't any protection for women in the society at that time, for black women. Mm-hmm. And I mean that in any way you could think of. And they were always at risk of being, I don't mean, I'm not talking about abuse in their home homes, but abused by someone in the society. Mm-hmm. And if that happened, there was no recourse. The myth was about the, the fragility and the ascendancy of the white women. The black women had none of that. So if given the opportunity, they had to be protected at all risks, at all costs, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Which meant they did not wouldn't be at some speakeasy somewhere. I mean, and if they were, it was only a certain kind of black woman that would take those risks. Because when you think about all the big furor now about uh, about black women, about health for all women, you know what I'm talking about, Mm -hmm. Uh, and legislation and all that. Well, none of that existed in say the early 1900s none of that existed there were no protections there none i know my grandmother's sister went off to st louis to be a songstress mm-hmm. and beautiful voice and she was ostracized and banned from the from our family because the idea was when you went off there you were exposed to all kinds of things 
And when I say all kinds of things, I mean all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And uh, and cruelties. Part of the story that hasn't been told, I think, is the story of how the Black community largely did try to shelter Black women. And so the idea that they would just sort of like be going off and doing this and that, really, from what I know, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't have happened, which also makes this a more layered community and also goes against this image of Black women as coming into the world knowledgeable and and to any physical and just you know born full of lust right not true mm-hmm. the the environment uh outside of the community is so dangerous mm-hmm. that a hyper conservative mm-hmm. uh rearing was necessary mm-hmm. so if you even hinted this, mm-hmm. is what I'm, this is what I'm getting from you. If you even hinted at, <clears throat> you know, oh, I want to be in the entertainment. I want to be a song. Show. Oh, no. no. No, no. Out of protection. Right. For your life, for your livelihood, for your for your being. Well, you could have little shows at the church mm-hmm. or in the community. There was a hall where you would go. I know my, um, called the Greystone Hall. And my aunt talked about, you know, my grandmother would play like ragtime piano and they would do little skits. And that was it. Hmm. And then after that, you went home. Uh, no, 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 no. And so, uh, when you when you think about it, it it, it makes a, a lot of sense uh, because outside of that, there was no protection for you. Right. You know, you were just so. Hmm. So that's just something to to think about. And to also um, think about uh, how this this image of of the African American woman of a certain era being because it's one I have a a short opera called Night Trip and the young woman who portrayed it said that what she really liked about it was it. young girl in it she's a teenager that she doesn't have doesn't come to it with this total awareness of everything um um and that um she she is innocent Hmm. and she likes the portrayal of that innocence which i thought was interesting Hmm. there's so much here um I want to go back to this thing because I think it's something that can be addressed directly. Mm-hmm. Um, should someone uh, set up a fund to uh, pool money, resources to put towards Bunny Briggs's what do you call his him? marker? His marker, yeah, yeah. I would be Bunny. It would be the two of them. Would be Bunny and all Bunny, that. It would be. I have to be on the same. Could be on this. Could be on the same marker. Marker, mm-hmm. really. I would think. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, it, it, like, would would we contact you or like what's what's the well i guess you would contact me i'm the um um i took care of the arrangements to have money there Mm -hmm. and i would have to dig up the paperwork uh and uh and talk to them about it 
and see what, you know, because I know they did, you know, I, I want to get all of it. it over there. It's, it's a big story, but, um, but I think it would be very meaningful to have the marker there. Hmm. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I, Oh, Oh, listen, uh, first of all, uh, I got to thank you for your time and, uh, hopefully, oh, my pleasure. hopefully I haven't turned you off of podcasting, tap dance, balding black man, all the things. Hopefully we can do Oh this my goodness. One, oh, oh, one you, again. you are so, uh, it's been such a pleasure <clears throat> to, um, to speak with you <clears throat> and, uh, I will let, um, uh, Diane Walker know that we spoke. Oh. Please, please send her my undying, unending, eternal love. Uh, um, but I, I do have one more question. Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm good. You, you, you know, reading a bit about you, you come from a family of uh, educators. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and if, if you're if, if you're talking to me about starting within, you know, Jim Crow segregation, that means. Um, mm-hmm. you were exposed to, uh, very strong, um, black education or African-American mm-hmm. education. You, you mm-hmm. have a lot of knowledge mm-hmm. <clears throat> as far as my understanding of the consequences of integration. Um, um, I was listening to a radio show, uh, Lurie Daniel favors on, um, Sirius XM uh, and she had someone on who wrote a book about integration and the loss of 100,000 black educators the, the fired uh schools shut down and integration didn't of course didn't work both ways it was black people uh-huh. being bust to um um i don't want to say toxic um adversarial uh white spaces <clears throat> uh-huh. and and 100,000 jobs gone which they the author added up the amount of money that 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 um, adds mm-hmm. up to that was just completely siphoned from the black community. But mm-hmm. what piqued my interest uh, when you first started speaking was you mentioned your community and uh, you had rituals within mm-hmm. your community. Can mm-hmm. you can you flesh that out for me? What what kind of rituals were present in in your community? Well, you know, I was just I gave it back to my um, cousin. Mm-hmm. Uh, whose whose father taught at poultry science at Alabama and A and M, um, and her mother taught home ec there. Um, uh, my cousin Bridget. It was a handwritten cookbook with with just recipes and for all kinds of occasions and overwhelming. You haven't for all kinds of things like. Quick yeast rolls to fancy yeast rolls. I mean, we, we were talking serious. <laughs> you know, all the Charlotte roots and all the all the um, chow chow and but you know every kind of very fancy, um, every kind of from plain to fancy. Hmm. She was the extension specialist for colored families, so you had the state would have an extension specialist that went to black homes um and i know her family the person this cookbook belonged to goes back to the 18 her family goes back to the 1800s in my hometown Mm. uh but um there were social clubs garden clubs 
and of course bridge clubs and my mother and the friends they had something called the Thursday afternoon bridgettes and the Saturday afternoon bridgettes and they were all um, they were either teachers or a funeral director funeral director's wife doctor's wife who would also be a teacher because the women in that group none of them were just at home because the my godmother who who was a doctor's wife she also was a teacher and she was one of the early special education teachers well she was the first person in uh, tennessee that was hired by uh, president roosevelt to um to work with children that were homebound it was they were homebound children and she went around working with them mm-hmm. um so they did all these things and and everybody in the community knew everybody. So I think that when, well, I mean, this gets into moving up north, but I think that when people lost that community structure, they didn't know who to turn to. Because my mother taught at a one-room country school, and I, I went there when I was little, I don't remember, maybe just vaguely. But you had everybody in the same classroom, right? Mm -hmm. And so you would, she taught kids how to brush their teeth if they needed to. She would bring toothbrushes and how to tie their shoes. I mean, it was like the whole thing Mm -hmm. if they needed it. And it wasn't because, it was maybe because the family couldn't afford a toothbrush. It wasn't, you know, they would have if they could have. It's not like you could go to 7-Eleven, you know, where would they have gotten this toothbrush? Right. But she would bring the, the toothbrushes to school with her this sort of thing that's what she said Hmm. um so there was this it's like a big extended family uh and so when people moved out of those communities then you know where do you turn where's your sense of belonging your sense of identity and i think and we moved to Chicago, and I, I never really liked the North really that much because, you know, there wasn't that sense of community. Even though, you know, I went to a very good school there. But um, I think those different organizations and that tight-knit community in my hometown, for instance, was very... It created a society, a very strong society, and there were a lot of societies like that. Hmm. So uh, I know even now the barber is very important, but uh, when we had what I call a, well, they call it the Columbia race ride, but I call it a race resistance. When they had that in my hometown, it was these women who knew what was going on. And they, the funeral director's wife, who was a very close family friend, the night that martial law was imposed on my hometown, she um, left her children at our house because we were very close. 
and she drove to Nashville to get an attorney by herself. And uh, and that attorney was uh, Attorney Luby, who's very famous uh, uh, in Nashville, you know, the building's name for him. And he worked with Thurgood Marshall. So Thurgood Marshall came down and defended uh, the men who were charged, and they were all, all charges eventually were dropped. There were 25 men, and out of 25 men, 24 men, uh, the charges were dropped. Um, yeah, when when was this? 1946. Golly, okay. So, <clears throat> what uh, what um, what preceded the the uh, resistance? Well, this was right after World War II, which parallels my play about the will about after the Civil War because things hadn't changed. So they came um, back um, from World War II. And, uh, and of course, there was a fear probably in my community was like, boy, you had those, those black men over there and they had gave them guns and whatever, you know, Lord knows what else. And and here they are, they're back here. So um, this young man had gone to a store, um, a radio store, and um, it was his mother's radio, and there was just an interchange, and they didn't fix it, and they gave it. First they gave, didn't fix it, then they gave it to somebody else and they gave it back, whatever. There's an argument that ensued and and um, and some pushing and he was there with his mother uh, and the young man who just come back from the war was still in uniform and he had been a welterweight boxing champ over in Europe in his black troop. <laughs> so he knocked this guy he hit him and the guy fell through the plate glass window wow. and so i guess he fooled with the wrong person in welterweight boxing champ in uniform <laughs> <laughs> this is not a good idea <laughs> so um actually i still know the white woman whose family owned that business um she's a strong civil rights uh activist and she was telling me, she was a little girl, and her mother got a phone call from the father. And this was something that these this, they rented this radio shop business. And these people that owned it were really not very good people. Mm -hmm. um, that the father called the mother and said, uh, we got some, got to get a window repaired. We got some glass to put back in. So then the, this really stirred things up in the town. This really, you know, the, 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 uh, the, some of the white people in the town, it's never everybody, but they wanted this guy. They wanted him bad. Mm -hmm. You know, they wanted to take care of him right then and there. Mm -hmm. Uh, because I was considered, you know, the worst crime, yeah. Uh, and the son, so 
make a long story short, they whisked them out of town because uh, this gentleman, he owned the barbershop, but he was like one of the big businessmen in town. The the boxer was, that came back from war? Mm -mm, mm -mm. Oh, oh. The man who owned the barbershop. Oh, this okay. was a young guy. The man who owned the barbershop. Yeah. I mean, he probably would have been in World War One or something. But this is a gentleman named Julius Blair, Mr. Blair. Uh, he was one of the town's you know, leading black citizens. Mm -hmm. He said, no more social lynchings in this town. <laughs> and so they, when the rabble rousers came in and tried to, you know, tear up the black business district, the, the black men were up there on the rooftops waiting for him. And so, and they started shooting and they turned away. And then martial law was declared and they brought in the troops, whatever. And so that's when our close family friend, who was a member of the Bridgettes, drove to Nashville while it was under martial law. Wow. Which was incredibly brave of her by yeah. herself at night in 1946 wow. and 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 went and got Luby because see they had declared there would be no long distance calls going out of town they didn't have cell phones they didn't have any way of calling and saying could you come she had to go get him wow wow I didn't know that she did it that night until I was talking to her daughter about a year ago and she told me that yeah, Mama drove to Nashville and got him and drove him back to Columbia that night. I mean, what an incredibly brave woman. And so I wrote it, I just wrote a short play about that night. Okay. I just did that. I just did that. And I've always meant to uh since i heard the story so i did write a short play about that night and um uh yeah so stories like that you wouldn't know about and a thurgood marshall um when he was there for the trial all those weeks he would come they would bring him to our house to have his meals because <sighs> uh... we were known the fat the ones like i said the ones that weren't teachers they were the dynamite cooks, you know. <laughs> so wait, the 24 of the 25 men that were being prosecuted were some of them that were on the roofs protecting the neighborhood. Oh, you know, I don't know that. Oh, we don't. Okay, okay. Oh, I don't gosh. know that. Because I, I, I interviewed a lot of those, a lot of individuals about that. I interviewed my, my mother. I know there's a dissertation about it. I interviewed a lot of people um that were there and when i got four or five of those men and i know they were there and it was one evening on the porch and i had my cassette tape recorder and i asked them and they said i don't know and they just said no i said were you there no they wouldn't say anything taking so it never, to the grave uh-huh yeah i never got whereas a, a woman who worked for the funeral director who was there and was one of the well-known people in the community too, 
he told me the names of the people that were up there. Hmm. But then, but they, you know, because, you know, yeah, they didn't want to have, you know, in a town, small town, you know, they just didn't want to have that connected with it. And, and if it ended up in the paper or something or, mm-hmm. or whatever, mm-hmm. uh-huh. because they have streets named for uh, a street named for, because uh, one of the men who had been involved in a prior uh, lynching in my hometown, he was the county magistrate. Okay. And he wanted to, he said, well, let me just take this boy, you know, the young man back, and I'll get him out of town. And Julius Blair said, no, you're not taking him anywhere. Let me, uh, I'll do it. So he had that much power to do that. Wow. He got him out of town. Um, but uh, there's a street named after that magistrate in my hometown. So, you know, it's like, but we're trying to get an African-American museum now on the site of the funeral home. So hopefully, you know, just, which would be very important because a lot of things, you know, that you just, you know, what happened to them, they're just, you know, papers and documents and, you know, after the schools close, okay, where are all those records, you know, our, our schools? Right. That were because see that was the schools and the churches was where they were where all the records were. So I've always had this big desire to preserve history, mm-hmm. and um, and I know a lot of it slipped through my hands because early on I didn't want to say to somebody here, can you give me those to keep? I didn't want mm-hmm. to say it because as a woman who had everything, Miss Cornelia Braden, she had so many papers from her. Um, from our hometown, yeah, and uh, and I remember seeing something a a newspaper article about Thurgood Marshall being in our hometown. You know things like that. Mm-hmm. It was just sitting there on a chair, uh, and uh, so and then she passed away, and and nobody knows what happened to all. She had a whole like a big room the size of a living room with documents wow. and papers. Nobody knows what happened to those. So one of the things with, with Bunny and Olivet and um, Effie Ornery Miller, her father, I just didn't want anything to happen to any of those papers because those are precious. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like what you heard and want to support Tableau Tour, then join our Patreon at patreon.com slash Travis Knights. Uh, Patreon is a service that allows people to support artists and creatives that make content that they enjoy or benefit from. If you're considering joining, know this. You will be contributing to the creation of new work. It's it's astounding how long this has taken me, but I'm I'm currently like hunched over. You know, this is this is my life. OK, you're li- listening. Uh, so. Uh, I go to a rehearsal, I come back home and hunch over and edit. I, I go do a show, I come back home, hunch over and edit. Currently editing um, Tap of Tour's first documentary feature called Restorative Culture, Jonathan Morin. Uh, I'm in love with it. I hope you love it too, but it's time consuming. And it w- listen, it'll be out when it's out. You hear me? Stop frustrating me. Okay. Uh, <laughs> 
Uh, Tap Love Tour goes beyond this podcast. The TLT is a production house that creates pieces, music, dance, vlogs, documentaries, all related to the dance. I have plans for collaborations that are now achievable over time with this Patreon model. You're all essentially Tap Love Tour micro producers. Now, if you want to help us to create, if you want to join the Tap Love Tour family, then head over to patreon.com slash Travis Knights and join at any tier that makes sense for you. We'll be back next time with another wonder-filled guest. Until then, much love, one love, tap love, peace.